This is Inside Politics. I'm Steve Harrison. It's an odd time for reporters who cover elections. It's a lot harder than it used to be to talk to some candidates. The emergence of social media has certainly played a role, but there's something else going on. A reluctance by some candidates, mainly Republicans, to agree to interviews or even participate in debates. In April, the Republican National Committee withdrew from the Commission on Presidential Debates. Closer to home, Republican U.S. Senate nominee Ted Budd refused to debate his opponents in the primary and has shown no sign of agreeing to debate Democratic nominee Sherry Beasley. We have two guests today to help us examine this trend. First up is Andrew Dunn. He's a former reporter for the Charlotte Observer and editor of Charlotte Agenda, now called Axio Charlotte. Two years ago, he was the communications director for Republican gubernatorial nominee Dan Forrest. We'll also talk to Michael Cruz of Politico, whose range of story subjects have included U.S. Senators Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin and Congressman Madison Cawthorn. But first, let's hear from co-hosts Jim Morrill and Tim Funk. Hey, guys. Hey, man. How you hey. doing? So we're talking today about kind of this intersection between politics and the media. I've certainly noticed this for a long time that it's just harder to get access, harder to get interviews. What do you guys, uh, you guys agree with that? I'm, I'm going to be interested when you talk to Andrew about sort of the behind the scenes mindset of these candidates campaigns who shut out the mainstream media. Are they they must be convinced that it's just a, going to be a, a turnout election and all they really have to do is get their passionate supporters, their base to turn out and they'll win that there aren't a lot of persuadable voters anymore. But I wonder if that's true. That's a big gamble. Uh, if you're not talking to the mainstream press, you may not be talking to that suburban voter that you need and you may look invisible or or a mystery, which I think is what is happening with Ted Budd a little bit. Yeah, I think if you look at, at Charlotte politics, Alma Adams is the Democratic congressional uh, representative from Charlotte. She talks to the media often has a big outreach campaign. But then you look at the surrounding counties, Dan Bishop, Republican, does not speak with kind of the mainstream media. Richard Hudson really doesn't engage. Patrick McHenry does not engage. And I just think over the last probably five or six years, it's become really, really pronounced. I'm not sure people and the voter, voters care about whether reporters get access or not, but they do care, I would think, I hope, about debates. And I think when you're in a tight race and you say, I'm not going to debate, you're. it seems like you're giving an issue to, the, to your opponent uh, who could call you chicken or say you're hiding from the voters. If you were way ahead, that's one thing. But this is a close race, this Senate race. So I don't get why he would not want to debate. People expect it, I think. All right. So let's get to our first guest today. It is Andrew Dunn. Uh, he formerly worked for the Charlotte Observer and the Charlotte Agenda. Then two years ago, he switched and got into politics as the communications director for Republican Dan Forrest's campaign for governor. He now writes a newsletter on Substack called Long Leaf Politics, but mostly he's removed from the world of journalism and campaigns. He makes his living as a carpenter. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on the program. You've been on both sides uh, in newsrooms and in campaigns. Newsrooms have always probably been a little more liberal or progressive than the country as a whole. And if you go back five or 10 years ago, do you think that was an, an issue in terms of how their ability to cover cover issues or cover campaigns? Oh, well, it's tough to say, you know, between now and 2016, but certainly over time, um, the trend has become more pronounced. There's been plenty of studies that have tried to quantify, so to speak, the liberal versus conservative leaning of a newsroom. And um, one of the big ones is called The American Journalist in the Digital Age from 2018. It tracked a steady progression leftward 
of most American newsrooms. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with consolidation in the industry. Nowadays, you know, today versus 10 years ago, um, a lot more of the media environment is centered around major metro areas, around Washington, around New York City, around Los Angeles. So while it's, it's really tough to say, you know, quantifiably, uh, I, I think you're probably onto something there. You talked about that campaign that you were on. That was the 2020 governor's race between Roy Cooper and Dan Forrest. Um, and so in that race, if I remember the Forrest campaign, you guys didn't do a, a ton of traditional media, kind of the topic of this show. And that's pretty common now with a lot of Republican candidates in the state. I mean, Dan Bishop, the congressman here from Charlotte, does not do a lot of media. Richard Hudson, the same. So just give me an overall view. Why is that? Why has there been a change where there's not a lot of engagement with newspapers and TV? Well, the short answer is, is that it's just not necessary anymore, uh, by and large. You know, 20, 30 years ago, the most efficient way to reach a large audience would be to go through the mainstream media, for lack of a better term. But now uh, with Facebook, with other social media advertising, you can cut a video and send it to people who will respond favorably to it. And you can get across exactly the message that you want to get across. You don't have to kind of cross your fingers and hope that your message will will translate through however a journalist wants to, to, to write it. A lot of campaigns, uh, and, and I think this is true for both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, while the trend may be a little bit more pronounced in the GOP, I think you're seeing that Democratic politicians are also kind of uh, avoiding as many mainstream media appearances and, and focusing instead on just publishing content themselves. You talked about the ability to cut videos, engage with voters on social media. Democrats can do that, too. But at the same time, they still do. They're still, at least in North Carolina, and I think in a lot of places, a little more active and willing to engage with kind of legacy media, if you want to call them that. What's going on on the Republican side? Why is there a hesitancy to kind of play ball, so to speak? Yeah, well, I'd push back a little bit on that. I mean, when's the last time that Governor Cooper has had a true open press conference um, I think that there's plenty of examples of, of Democratic politicians who are kind of avoiding uh, the mainstream media as well. But uh, to your point, I think the larger issue is it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem. So a lot of times Republicans will they'll feel like they're speaking two different languages when they're talking with a reporter. And a lot of that has to do with uh, there's an undeniable leftward lean in most newsrooms. I mean, there's been plenty of studies that tried to, to quantify that. A lot of it has to do with the location of where newsrooms are located in metro areas, which tend to be more liberal. Um, and, and also a lot of journalists uh, come out of uh, liberal universities. That kind of bleeds in to how a journalist will approach a story, how a journalist will frame a story, you know, who's the hero of the story and who's the villain, who's attacking and who's defending who gets the benefit of the doubt, you know, which experts, quote unquote, experts are quoted, you know, what's rated half true versus what's rated mostly false, you know, because uh, most journalists hold liberal positions on things like abortion, the Second Amendment, illegal immigration, school choice, you know, kind of anything other than the liberal orthodoxy is going to be treated as controversial and extreme. And so Republicans are just kind of hesitant to to wade into that. Um, for fear that whatever they talk about is just going to be boiled down into some five second snippet that a journalist can use to to write a gotcha headline on. 
So with, during the forest campaign, you talked about the two sides speaking different languages. Do you do you kind of remember an, of an example of that? Uh, excuse me, an example of that where um, you felt like that you guys were being treated unfairly? Well, so uh, one thing that comes to mind is uh, the Dan Force for Governor kickoff event. So uh, you know this was this was pre COVID. So this you know feels like a different world from where we are today. Uh, but the Forest Campaign held a big rally at, in Winston Salem. Lieutenant Gov- then Lieutenant Governor Forrest gave a speech, you know, talking all about economic opportunity, educational opportunity, human dignity, uh, unity, you know, a common vision for the state. It was a very uplifting speech, I thought. And, you know, I helped write it. So I, I intended, you know, he and I intended it to be an uplifting speech. Uh, but when you look at the News and Observer's coverage of it, the headline was you know, attacking socialism and identity politics. Dan Forrest kicks off campaign for governor. So when you when you read that headline and when you read how the story was framed, um, you would get the sense that it was a um, you know a very angry speech, a very you know uh, a controversial speech, an antagonistic speech. When that's really not what the speech was at all. But perhaps you know perhaps that's what the reporter took across from it. That's what came across to him because he was picking up on certain bits of language that were not intended or, or it, there was some sort of uh, something was lost in translation there. And, and do you remember times inside the campaign when you guys had debates about whether to do certain interviews? Yeah. I mean, whether to do certain interviews and speak to people, do you remember, was it ever a heated back and forth? Um, I wouldn't say it was a heated back and forth. There certainly were conversations on you know whether it was going to be a net positive to engage with this reporter or whether it would you know whether anything that we said um, was going to change what the story was going to be and a lot of times it, it clearly wasn't I mean in a, a lot of cases what would happen was a reporter would already have a story written and, and even published on their website and we would get an email saying hey we published the story do you want to have a comment all by email, just do you want to have a, a statement from you guys tacked on to the back of it? There was very, very few instances where we had a lot of inquiries from reporters who wanted to have an open conversation and, and really engage with the ideas. And you, you talked about um, the ability to reach your voters through social media and, and newsletters and other platforms. But you know, there are still voters in the middle in a state like North Carolina. And to win uh, to win an election, to win a majority, you do need to reach that narrow slice of voters. You know, looking back, was it was there a, a way to reach them? And, and is it still necessary to engage the media to, re, you know, to be on the TV news, to be in the newspaper, to get that small slice of voters who just who aren't decided? Yeah, I, I think so. And there certainly are ways to reach independent voters, you know, outside of the media. I mean, it, it's amazing what you can do with Facebook these days. I mean, if a, a campaign has a education message, you can target that just to parents with school age children, and that will you know, reach across political aisles as well. But I do think that there is a role for media. And I don't think, um, you know, the forest campaign certainly didn't ignore the media altogether. Uh, the forest campaign was just kind of more targeted in what media we wanted to do. A lot of it was local media. I mean, we spent a lot of time going to local newsrooms, you know, the newspaper in Randolph County, for example. I know we went in there and had a conversation with the reporter there. We 
uh, talked a lot to local television stations. And you're right, that is a great way to reach independent, undecided voters. It's just not always going to be the case that a larger metropolitan newsroom like your Charlotte Observer, your Raleigh News and Observer might not always be the best venue for that. And I guess it's hard for um, in a race like North Carolina governor, say with a big Senate race, you are going to have a platform. A lot of candidates will have a platform on Fox or OAN, but there probably wasn't a national venue for Dan Forrest two years ago to put out that message. It just wasn't that high profile of a race. Is that fair? I wouldn't say it wasn't that high profile of a race. I think, you know, just the COVID issue just dominated everything. I mean, now now we're two years removed from it. But if you recall, I mean, this was this was 2020. This was the middle of it. Uh, Governor Cooper was on TV every other day with a new press conference talking about what restrictions were being put in place, what the new mandates were going to be. And there was just no oxygen really for anything other than that. So, Andrew, on we talked about those COVID issues. How would you do you remember the media's coverage of that? Did you feel like it was fair? No, I don't think it was fair. As you may recall, the media kind of took on the role of the mask police uh, for for a long period of time there where you would have stories every day where, you know, reporters would just go here and there and see if everybody was wearing masks and then write stories about whether people were wearing masks in in one particular venue or another. That kind of showed up on the Forest campaign. Every story tended to be about who was wearing masks, who was not wearing masks. There was no coverage or, or really discussion of anything else other than that. There, there was also the media was was desperate to link COVID cases to the forest campaign. There was a story at one point that said, you know, one person who attended forest rally later diagnosed with COVID. So there, you know, there was no there was no real way to, to say, you know, that the two were connected. I want to switch gears to debates a little bit. I mean, I remember that, that Forrest and Cooper did debate that fall. We just came off the Republican primary for U.S. Senate where Ted Budd didn't debate Pat McCrory or Mark Walker. And it, it's possible we haven't had any indication there'll be a debate this fall between him and Sherry Beasley. First, do you think we're going to see more of that? And is it a mistake for a candidate to, to sit it out? Um, I mean, the conventional wisdom is in politics is that if you're ahead in the polls, you don't want to debate. I mean, debates are a great venue for you to mess up and fall back in the polls, but they're not really a great venue for you to really skyrocket in the polls. It's kind of a reflection that the uh, the Senate race is neck and neck and that neither candidate uh, is super eager to debate. So I would expect, you know, there's a lot of money going into that Senate race. I mean, obviously, the candidates are deciding that their time is better spent just pushing their own message rather than you know, being put in a position where they could potentially, you know, say something unscripted that would harm them. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for for coming on and talking with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, and thanks again. Thank you, Steve. We're joined now by Michael Cruz. Michael's a senior staff writer at Politico and Politico magazine. Prior to joining Politico, he was an award winning reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. Michael's written long pieces about everybody from Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene to Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin, as well as a lot of stories about Donald Trump and Steph Curry. Uh, (laughs) Michael is a graduate of Davidson College and lives in Davidson with his wife and two daughters. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about politicians' relationships with reporters today, and uh, you've covered a lot of politicians. Some have talked to you, some haven't. It seems like more and more politicians are not talking to reporters these days or even debating their opponents. 
So what's going on? Well, I don't think it's necessarily a new thing. Uh, more politicians might be talking less, but there have always been politicians who've tried to avoid uh, too many interactions with reporters. I think what is happening is is uh, not hard to diagnose. There are simply more ways for them to get out what they want to get out. There are podcasts, there are social media channels, uh, and there are, at least on the right, and for Republicans in particular, uh, a robust array of uh, much friendlier outlets than larger, more mainstream outlets like uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Politico, etc. So there's less of an incentive to have uh, a potentially thornier conversation with uh, with reporters who aren't as friendly. And there are plenty of ways to get uh, your message out uh, without doing so. So I don't think it's too hard to figure out. And I don't even take it personally. Um, <laughs> there, there are always uh, calculations on their end about why to talk or why not to talk, uh, which to some extent I understand. It's my job as a reporter to try to earn uh, those opportunities to have conversations with them. But if I don't have those conversations, that's fine too. I don't need to have those conversations to write uh, seriously and to report seriously about them. Well, talk about that. Uh, You know, we've all talked to politicians who wouldn't talk to us. You did a long story on Madison Cawthorn not long ago. How do you write about somebody who's not talking to you? I mean, look, the, the, the person, the principle, as they say sometimes in politics, is but one voice. There are countless people that uh, I or anybody like me can talk to uh, to get a better sense of what the principal is doing, what makes this person tick, uh, why we need to know uh, certain things about this person at this particular time. Uh, In many ways, I consider those conversations with concentric circles of people around the principal to be more valuable than the conversation if those conversations happen with the actual politician or candidate would-be politician. There's uh, infinite uh, ways to do this reporting and to learn what you need to learn and to develop uh, sources and develop authority to uh, write what needs to be written about a person uh, who is either in office or aspiring to be in office. And again, the the, the person at the center, the the name in the headline is but one uh, but one voice. I sometimes think that there are instances when there's almost too much access, right? Like I'm, I'm having too much conversation with the principal. And it, 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 in some ways, gets in the way of my time to have more conversations with people who I guess, uh, in some ways, might be a little bit more clear-eyed about uh, what this person is up to and what makes this person tick. Michael, Tim Funk here. Um, you're, you're right. We've seen politicians uh, shut out reporters for, for a long time. But it does seem like recently Republicans have taken their kind of adversary relationship with the media to a new level. Uh, Meanwhile, pollsters at Gallup say only 11% of Republicans trust the mass media, while 70% of Democrats do. Why why the discrepancy, do you think? I mean, it's in Republican candidates' best interests at this point to have a very public adversary relationship with the mainstream press. It it earns points uh, in primary, certainly. It earns points with uh, with the base case by case uh, remains to be seen whether uh, those points earned in primaries and with the base translate to general election wins. I mean, there there is sort of a you know, granted a small group of swingable voters, um, but you do have to 
uh, keep that in mind once you get past those primaries. And that's where Republicans even might play ball, so to speak, a little bit more and talk to reporters who don't just work for right-wing websites, who aren't just hosts of right-wing podcasts. You do have to appeal to a slightly wider media audience, perhaps, or you don't. I mean, it depends on the race and depends on the person. It's just such a fractured uh, media environment. And uh, you don't necessarily have to uh, have conversations with people like me, which I which I understand. <laughs> Do you think their mindset is maybe um, it's a turnout election? It's going to help me if I call the media the enemy of the people and, you know, they're peddling fake news. It'll help me with enough Republicans and stir them up or enough independents who tend to vote Republican that that's enough to win. Do you think there are enough persuadable voters out there and are they in danger of losing those people if they become invisible? Those people don't look at conservative media a lot necessarily. True. Uh, you know, it's, it's an open question sometimes in my mind, what media and how much media that very small sliver of the electorate even consumes. I don't know that uh, there are too many people sort of deciding uh, elections in that swing voter population who make those decisions based on you know, which outlet, which candidate is talking to. But it certainly is to the benefit, it seems at this point, clear uh, for Republicans to have a contentious relationship with the press. Just to me, it sometimes feels performative. Ron DeSantis is a great example. I've uh, written a couple longer pieces about him over the course of the last couple of years. The first instance sat with him for more than an hour in his office in Tallahassee. Second time, he didn't want to do that, but trailed him around the state. Also was a challenge because he doesn't exactly give enough time, uh, enough uh, notice to reporters about his whereabouts. But needless to say, he has, uh, he's certainly not the only one, but he has made it a point to have this kind of relationship with the press and make sure that people on his side of the aisle know it that the press doesn't like Ron DeSantis. The press doesn't treat Ron DeSantis uh, fairly, doesn't treat Republicans fairly. I mean, it is a way, not the only way, but it is a way that he has uh, scored points and it is a way that he has certainly elevated his status uh, within uh, the Republican framework, not just in Florida, but around the country. Let's bring it back to North Carolina. Republican Senate candidate Ted Budd hasn't been very accessible to the media. He's refused to debate his opponents in the Republican primary this year. How should reporters deal with that, I mean, with somebody who just doesn't talk? And do you think he'll change during the general election? I think to some extent he'll be forced to change, but only uh, if the press makes every effort to um, show up where he is. Uh, and that's important. Uh, you know, there are public events. Um, uh, not all events are are open. Not all events are are flagged and announced. But um, that's what reporting is for: to try to put yourself uh, in the same place as the candidate, uh, to uh, have every opportunity to ask those questions uh, and to uh, report those answers to uh, to voters. There's just no other way. Uh, but again, I mean, Ted Budd and his campaign—they're free to employ that strategy. They're not obligated to talk to anybody like me. But again, it, it, it works until it doesn't. And I think that's what we'll, we'll have to see uh, as as we uh, hurdle toward the midterms here. Michael, Tim Funk again. Um, 
The polls say that uh, people's perception of the media has has gone way down in recent decades. Back when some of us were growing up, Walter Cronkite and the other anchors would pretty much stick to the facts. Now we have anchors on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, who, you know, mix in their own often partisan opinions. Uh, You also have young reporters maybe that do Twitter and Facebook and put their opinions out there that may or may not be in their, their actual story. Does that make it harder for people working stiffs like you out there who are just trying to get a good story? I think it does make it harder because unfortunately uh, lots of people associate quote unquote, the media with faces on television and not just television, but national politics-oriented cable television. And that is not the media. I mean, the, the, the media is far too broad a term to mean any one thing, right? But those folks aren't, they're not reporters. We don't have the same job. Like my job is not the job of a host of a cable news show. My job is to go out and sort of uh, you know, be, be almost not seen reporting and trying to learn as much as I can to try to talk to as many people as possible. And I think when you do that, you have more and more conversations with more and more kinds of people. And at some point, usually pretty quickly, they stop considering me the quote media. I'm just there. I mean, clearly I'm from Politico. Clearly I'm a reporter, but we're just having a conversation about yelling uh, uh, partisan talking points at them from their television screen. That is not my job. But I do think that that is a hurdle that I sometimes need to get past when I'm out and about doing my work, uh, especially with you know folks who will show up at, at, at political events, just regular people. Uh, that is a part of the conversation to get to the more useful part of the conversation. But it's not terribly difficult to, to get past that obstacle. It's just, I'm here, we're talking, you're a person, and so am I. And pretty quickly, that sort of reflexive, um, the media is the enemy notion that they hear from uh, their chosen candidates slips away, and we're just having a conversation. Hey, Michael, um, I've seen your stuff, your tweets on, on Twitter, and, and you seem pretty guarded generally, and, you know, just throw the news out there if you have it. And um, mm. a lot of reporters aren't, and they put their opinions in, in uh, social media. Do you think that's uh, increasing and working against reporters and, and this whole trust issue? For sure. I, I, I don't um, I think your general read of my general approach to Twitter is correct. I just for me find that counterproductive. I need to be able to have useful conversations, information gathering conversations Conversations that let me do a better story and a, and a and to understand the subject matter better with anybody and everybody. And I don't want the most right wing Republican or the most left wing Democrat thinking that I'm not listening, that I'm not hearing them, that I'm not taking into account their perspective. That doesn't mean at the end of my effort to write a story, I need to let everybody say everything and anything. I make choices about how to, uh, what's, what's, what's correct and, and how to shade certain things and what choices I need to make. But it's my job to listen to everybody and to listen to everybody, I need to approach them as an honest broker. I need to be seen as an honest broker, an honest listener. And so it just feels like utterly counterproductive to put forth a, a stance 
on something like Twitter or in any way that would peg you as a certain kind of partisan. It's just not my job. And it's not the way I think anybody should be doing the job of a reporter. It makes me perhaps different. I know that there there are people, particularly younger, I'm 44, right? And and there are people who are 10 years younger than me, 15, 20 years younger than doing doing this job who who see it a little bit differently. Tim Funk again, uh, what influence would you say online media outlets like Politico and Axios have on the coverage of political campaigns? Are you reaching a lot of voters or is it that you're influencing the way uh, other reporters cover things or both? I think both. Certainly the most engaged voters, I'll speak for Politico. I've been at Politico for almost eight years now. Uh, The most engaged followers of politics, which is to say voters, uh, certainly are very aware of Politico. And I also think the more general interest mainstream and main publications take into account what Politico is covering and how Politico is covering it, the Times and the Post, CNN, so on and so forth. Everybody's watching everything. It's just a competitive reality in a hyper-competitive space. So how Politico covers something might influence how the Times covers something and vice versa. Hey, Michael, um, what advice would you give to reporters in covering candidates, even if they're reluctant to talk, talk about the issues or talk to reporters, period? So I don't know if this qualifies as advice, but I can I can speak for myself. And the way I always have approached this, even before I started covering politics, is that if, if you want to talk to somebody and that person is reluctant for whatever reason, it's my job to try to do everything I can to earn that conversation. The way I approach that is uh, by talking to people around that person. I envision concentric circles of people, you know, the, the inner circle, and then the second most inner circle, and then the third most inner circle, and, and, and so on and so on. And the more people and the more of those circles that I talk to, the more likely, in theory, it is that I'm going to talk to the person at the center of those circles, because everybody I talk to, I learn more about this person, and it adds to this person's incentive to have uh, his or her perspective in that piece. I'm going to do this anyway. I mean, I might, I make that clear to any team around a politician that I'm writing about. Essentially, and I don't quite put it this way, but I don't need you to do this story right. But I'd like to have a conversation <laughs> with with this with with this person, right? So it's on me. I don't I don't expect anything. I don't expect that kind of access. I have to earn that kind of access. And so I report to that. You work to that. Uh, I mean, that is how I approach it. It doesn't always work, uh, but uh, in terms of getting that conversation, getting that access, but it does always work, I think, in giving me the ability to do a better story, to do the best story I can in the time that I have to do it. And so I don't know if that would qualify as advice to other reporters, but I just, I just, you just have to work your way toward that person. And maybe you talk to that person and maybe you don't, but you're going to do the story regardless. Michael, put your analyst hat on for a minute. I want to ask you, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the state of our democracy. What's the cost to our society, to our democracy of candidates in both parties going out of their way to avoid tough questions, to avoid debates? And to retreat to Fox News or MSNBC, where 
to answer softball questions or have this rah-rah reception um, can't be good, right? Well, to some extent, it's it's a uh, another uh, manifestation of sort of the pulling apart of the, uh, the the common wheel, right? If if people on the right are just talking to each other, and people on the left are just talking to each other, they are not talking amongst each other, right? They're not talking to each other. The left is not talking to the right, and the right is not talking to the left, and that contributes to this breakdown. This breakdown of understanding, this breakdown of empathy. Uh, it's easier to dehumanize the other party as as other, right? If if you don't have this interaction, and so yeah, I just, I mean, this is this is sort of. Um, uh, you know, heady, dangerous stuff. But I, um, I enjoy being a reporter for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that it forces me to have lots of conversations with lots of different kinds of people in lots of different kinds of places. And I, and I, I think I have a better perspective on sort of the, the broad spectrum of you know, wants and needs and feelings of of a wide variety of Americans, which is something that. Too many people have too little of at this point, partly because of the press and partly because the voters on the right and the candidates on the right separate themselves. And to some extent, uh, the same thing is true on the left. I don't mean to draw equivalents. I think there's more of this happening on the right where they sort of retreat. But there's some version of it happening on the left, too, like sort of lefty resistance Twitter and you know right wing podcasts. It just is profoundly unhelpful for the overall state of democracy, which when you get right down to it, is just like living together, being together and understanding people who aren't like you and you know, disagreeing, but not um, in such a virulent way to where we are just incapable of living in the same place and having conversations with each other. It just seems like this is not, uh, this is not sustainable um, for, uh, for a democracy, if we continue to, to go this direction and to, and to be the way that we've been for the last, however many years. So we talk about each other being enemies instead of opponents is kind of what you're saying. That's That is a, that is a more succinct way to put it. Yes. Michael Cruz. Thank you very much. A good point. So a good thought. So we appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. So that was Michael Cruz with Politico. And before that, Andrew Dunn, a former reporter who did communications for Dan Forrest's campaign for governor in North Carolina two years ago. They both talked about um, kind of a growing uh, divide between candidates and the media who cover them. What'd you guys think? You know, I thought they both made some good points. You know, the fact is that there are a lot more alternatives for candidates on both sides. You know, the media is siloed more than it ever has been between uh, cable TV and social media and candidates can use any one of those venues to get their message out. Um, I think Michael made a good point about earning an interview or earning access to a candidate and prove your bona fides, you know, prove your proof that you can be trusted. And um, I think, you know, when reporters put things on social media that reflects their own opinions, uh, that doesn't help. I was struck by the candor of what Andrew said when you ask him, you know, why they're shutting out reporters more. And he said, because they're not necessary. You know, they've got other ways of getting their message out. To me, the, the elephant in the room today and, and sort of out there is that these candidates don't want to put up with tough questions from pesky reporters. And, you know, Ted Budd probably doesn't want to answer any questions about his stand on abortion given how the South uh, the Supreme Court ruling has 
you know, hurt some hardcore, no exceptions, abortion poems like Bud. And Democrat Sherry Beasley probably doesn't want to answer any questions about Joe Biden, whose poll numbers are still uh, historically low. But it's reporters' job to sort of get those answers. We work for our listeners and readers, not for politicians. And, you know, I, I don't think we're ever going to make politicians happy enough to talk to us, but we got to keep plugging away. And I think the one thing that Andrew said I thought was interesting was he felt like during the campaign, sometimes that uh, that his candidate and the media were speaking two different languages. And I do think that over probably the last five or 10 years, a lot of the media, I mean, I, I do think you could say that Republican candidates, Republican candidates have moved farther to the right. I think that's pretty clear. I think probably just from my personal experience, I've been in, we've all done this for a long time. I've been in the media for 25 years. I think it's moved to the left. I think reporters in general are younger than they were. And I think, you know, people who are younger tend to be maybe more idealistic, more progressive. And so I do think there is a difference in terms of both sides are moving in different directions. Well, I may be old fashioned, but I think, you know, we all are voters, even if we're reporters, we all have opinions, but it's only when you let your opinions, liberal or conservative, color your reporting, that's unprofessional. And I do agree that some young reporters uh, seem to think, well, you know, it's my Twitter uh, account. I can say what I want. But I mean, I, I think it hurts the image of our business when people get out there. And But I don't think a lot of them do, actually, except Anderson Cooper and Tucker Carlson, all these guys at night who, you know, who give their opinion. You know, I think we came up with an ethic of, of being fair, not fair and balanced in the Fox News <laughs> sense, but but fair. And I, I think we all learn to do that over time. And, you know, I think that's the way that you gain trust with politicians, with anybody. Um, bankers, if you cover banking, I mean, you prove your trust with them by by listening to them, uh, like Michael said, I think, and and, uh, and gaining trust and being giving, giving people a fair hearing. That's all that they want. But, you know, I think voters, I think we may be embarked on a new era where Reporters can do a more play a bigger role by fact checking candidates because there's a lot of misinformation out there and by giving context to things. If you go to a campaign event, you know, if you just write what they say and all the hoopla and everything, you're becoming part of the PR machinery. Unless you stand back and say, here's the context of what he said. He said this, but we checked it out and he or she and and it's not right. So to me, that's a more valuable role than for the media. And that probably wasn't done in the old days. And I'm glad that that's becoming more common. Um, well, we were doing ad watches at the Charlotte Observer years ago, um, you know, trying to do what they now call fact checks and, mm -hmm. and uh, true squatting of, of TV commercials. But the fact is that even when we did them, they ran once in the paper, usually inside somewhere, and the ad kept running and running and running. And so uh, kind of had a limited, limited use. Steve, you're the report. You're the guy out there these days. What's it like out there and how do you deal with it? You know, I'll, I'll just say what I was thinking about what Jim just said about this idea of, we see a lot of fact checks, um, and tons of media, WFAE does them, tons of newspapers, TV, they're all over the place. This idea to try and to kind of like sift through the spin and get to the heart of, heart of the matter. But even those are really hard. I mean, there's there's times I hear fact checks and I kind of listen to them. And then I've heard all the arguments and they're laid out very well. And then the final analysis when the gavel comes down is something being half true or mostly false. And I think, well, no, that 
that actually seemed true to me. I mean, it sometimes seems the opposite of whatever they just told me. I mean, I just think it's really hard. It's just a hard, this is a hard job to do, to be purely objective. And even something as simple as a fact check can be loaded with. <laughs> but it's so necessary now. I mean, there's so much misinformation out there. I mean, we all, we've all seen it. Um, you know, social media is a, is a wasteland for for misinformation and it's out there. And so the media has, has a duty, I think, to do what they can. You know, some, some of it's in the form of a fact check. Some of it's in the form of a news story. I mean, reporters have been unpopular with politicians for a long time, but it seems like that's in, a, in an age where we're called enemies of the people and our work is fake news, you know, according to some, uh, that, ma- that makes it harder. I think uh, people, I-, I covered in 2020, uh, some Trump rallies and 2016. And some people wouldn't talk to me because I was a member of the media and they just assumed that I was anti-Trump, which, you know, they didn't know anything about me or what I was going to write. But it's just, you know, they've heard that a lot. And I think the Democrats play the same games, too. I mean, you know, they I remember when we covered uh, John Edwards's race and, and we were always yelled at because we didn't go to his event and just tell people what he said and nothing else, you know. We tried to give context and that's their that's their gig. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Steve Harrison, along with Jim Morrill and Tim Funk for WFAE's Inside Politics Election 2022 podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.